Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. So this is Squirrel here. I'm introducing our interview with Johan Abeldskoff from EffieCode. This is part two. Last week we had a bit of an intro to some of our ideas about action science and conversations, improving Agile development, and lots of other good stuff. This week we get into a, a little bit more of the detail, in particular a topic near and dear to my heart, the ladder of inference, better known, at least to me, as test-driven development for people. So let's hear it. One of the many things that I like about your content is how we take it from being uh, very fluffy, vague, and, and turn it into some concrete techniques that we can apply. And you have been uh, sneaky enough to phrase some of your things in terms of technical terms. Yes. Like you have this concept of a TDD for conversations or... or... Test-driven development for people. Test room development for people, excellently, where we kind of cheat the the phrasing to make it more digestible for, it, for it, technical it, people, putting it perhaps, one of my pet peeves uh, that I've heard uh, Emily Bash mention is that sometimes the fluffy ones of us, every time we want to do something that's about conversations or culture or anything like that, we take all the, the engineers, our loving geeks, and we pull them out of their comfort zone and out, <laughs> over in our or our court, right? And, mm. and we now we are in charge. We are in our home court, and where where Emily mentioned, like this is one of the key powers of mob programming or ensemble programming, where we take the collaboration exercise and actually put it into like the hands of the developers, mm. put them not at the whiteboard with post-it notes like uh, all the mm. agile coaches, but you put the you inject into their domain. Uh, the 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 co-creational or conversational yeah. practice. Do you have any any thoughts on on that? Well, um, the, the, brilliant. I hadn't heard that that framing of, of ensemble or mob programming before, so I do love yeah, that. Yeah, I like that as well. Absolutely. Um, and and test-driven development for people came about because um, I was learning about you know, Jeffrey and I learned uh, uh, over over many years about these techniques from action science from Chris Argers. And when I was looking at and, and, and practicing with the ladder of inference, I'll illustrate it in a moment. It was amazing how much it felt like when I learned TDD. And because I had that direct experience, I could say these things are, are closely related. It's not that I'm dragging, dragging it in. It's not that I'm, I'm warping the uh, experience of applying it in order to kind of make it palatable and, and nice for developers. No, it's the same thing. Uh, so what, what you do in test, let me illustrate it, what, what you do in, in test-driven development is to write a little bit of code. Uh, you, you write the test, sorry, you write the test, and then um, uh, uh, write that little bit of code, it'll fail, and then you write some code, and you see whether it passes. And you keep repeating that pattern, of course. And the feeling that you get, or at least that I get whenever I'm doing TDD, and I, I really enjoy doing it, is uh, comfort and ease and, and certainty. I know that I'm gonna be making relatively slow progress compared to if I just banged on the keyboard until I got something that worked. I would feel that I was producing more lines of code, but I have no idea whether they worked. Whereas I feel like I'm stepping cautiously. Instead of running across some thin ice, I feel like I'm walking carefully and testing at each stage and I know where I am. And, and the feeling I was getting in my conversations was the, absolutely the running across thin ice. And I can imagine that, Johan, you've probably experienced that where you're having a conversation with someone and you're like, I have no idea whether this is going to blow up next. Now I'm going to talk about this person's and, and how they're acting and whether, how that makes me feel. And they may scream at me or leave the room or um, fire me or something else. 
And, and I had that over and over again, as probably many folks watching and listening us have. And then I tried with the ladder of inference and I said, oh, this is testing. This is just checking at every stage what's happening. Um, and I said I would illustrate it. I'm just going to illustrate it with the, the dialogue that I was describing before with the, the role play with the product manager, because I was taking the first step on the ladder of inference there. First step on the ladder is to really to say what you see. What would a video camera record? What data do we have in common? Uh, and then you ask, uh, after having verified that and get a green test, yes, we both see that. We both agree that um, you, you sound like you might be sad. And then you say, well, the important part for me is your feelings are important to me. I, I think your feelings are important. Do you agree? And um, uh, that, that is a test that can fail, right? And you can fail at the observation point. You know, like, uh, I might say, hey, guys, you know, I, I feel like I observe that this uh, Zoom call that we're on is, is running really well. You know, you, I'm hearing you perfectly. Your video is great. And you guys say, yeah, squirrel, but you sound like a robot chipmunk. And, um, you know, your, your, your um, uh, motions are all jittery and, and we're not seeing the same thing that you're seeing. That would be useful for me to know because um, anything I then reason about after that but might not be useful. You know, you guys are ignoring me. Well, you're not ignoring me. You can't hear me. Right. So that would be that would be a useful thing to to get right first. So then you take each of these steps and the, the latter, uh, you, you can see more about it and read more about it on uh, conversationaltransformation.com. That's our website and there's videos and links to our own websites and so on. Our, our 162 episodes of, of the podcast. Um, but uh, the, the point is that you can um, uh, uh, once you as you take steps along this ladder, you're gradually making more and more certain that you're on firm ice, that you're not going to fall through that you're acting uh, in accordance with what the other person's reasoning is, and you're building trust all the way along because you and the other person are saying, yes, we see this the same way. I might not agree, but at least I know what your view is and how you reach that conclusion. Um, so that's uh, an example of, uh, of taking a experience I had as a developer and applying it um, in this very different field and saying, actually, this is the same thing. And the thing that the, the comfort and ease and joy that you're getting in uh, writing code is something you could also have in your conversations. Fantastic, and and that's also just one of the 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 small ways where words matter, right? Words matter. The words we pick, and getting that sense. And I and I love the 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 phrasing you have, like where it's it's like test room development because it is taking that sensation that you're just running across. You have no control or it might go off in all directions and, and actually getting some iterative approach at figuring out where the, the tracks, they, they diverge. And that again, fits back to like you, you said, I don't remember, unfortunately, who of you mentioned it, but saying frustration is an opportunity, <laughs> right? And, and frustration that often comes from some sort of conflict, whether it's a conflict of mental models of values or of seeing different things. Well, Squirrel, you told me this, and, and Frederick, you told me that. Yes. So uh, the, the, even if we figure out at that completely foundational level, we are not seeing the same things, then that, that's tremendously important. Uh, and so many of the misunderstandings that people have I, I, uh, come from that lack of common understanding. I was just before coming on here, I was seeing a, a client of mine writing and saying, I, I don't understand why this person had this view. And I said, well, I asked him and what he said was it, 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 the person had the view there were too many meetings. And he said, I looked at his calendar. There, there are no meetings in his calendar. What's he talking about? And I said, well, I asked him. That was the curiosity that helped me discover what was going on. And it turns out uh, he meant ad hoc. Hey, can you help me with this? And the person said, ah, that makes sense. He's always complaining about being distracted from his coding. 
that's what he means by too many meetings. He doesn't mean something in his calendar. He means somebody chatting to him. They could have a completely different conversation about addressing the problem of too many meetings. Whereas if uh, the, the um, uh, manager was going to come back with, um, you know, you don't have too many meetings, your calendar's empty, stop complaining. That wasn't going to be very productive. <laughs> that wasn't going to help very much. So it was that level of understanding at the very basic level of understanding what the words meant. And the thing is that that's, that kind of misunderstanding uh, generally uh, happen, hap happens uh, instantaneously without people understanding that there even could be a misunderstanding that what is meant by the word meetings has more than one meaning. That, that's, not, that's not intuitive because what happens as soon as the way our brains work, when I say I have too many meetings, you get a picture in your head. You know, the little movie plays and you're like, oh, okay, um, this is what a meeting is. This is what it means by too many. I've had too many meetings before. I know what that's like. Uh, um, no curiosity comes up like, oh, well, what does he mean by meetings? I'm, you know, what are all the, there's many possible uh, meanings that doesn't occur to us. And, and it shouldn't, by the way, I'm not saying we, in, in the way, if, if all of our lives were run in a very deliberate process like this, we, we, we wouldn't get anything done. Um, I wonder if that traffic light means that I should stop or go. It normally <laughs> means stop, but yeah. red could mean something to, I should ask and inquire and find out, you know, the horns would be check. going. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that would not but, function. We couldn't function. Well, yeah, when I remember reading the book "Thinking Fast and Slow," which is the Daniel Kahneman book um, that talks about uh, the way our minds work in these different systems, and the, the overall message there is there's two systems: the fast one, which is happening unconsciously all the time, and the slower, deliberate one that's there to help you learn and catch errors and, and whatnot. And the, the challenge then is knowing and understanding how to bring that system to and to help when it's needed. Not that we should be using it all the time. We, we just wouldn't work. You know, we, we navigate our world in a quite literal way. We cross the street, get where we're going, you know, uh, check stuff out of uh, the code base. We have all these habitual routine uh, activities that we do that we've reduced down to patterns that we can execute automatically. And that's a good thing and that's a necessary thing. So it's not that we're going to we're saying that that's bad and we should give it up. But what we are saying is something different: is that we we can become sensitive to cues that it's time to bring in a different mode of thinking. <laughs> that, that, that and in particular, if we find, start feeling ourselves being frustrated, angry, upset, it's a chance to rather than continuing our habitual response of "I'm right, they're wrong," <laughs> uh, that there's could be a better response is to say, "Huh, I'm right." Uh, I think they're wrong, but you know what? They probably think the other way. They probably think they're right and I'm wrong. I wonder why, you know, even though I know I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right. I'm curious what they're seeing differently. I'm curious what's different about their experience and, and cultivating that kind of curiosity and learning to, to activate it on the trigger of something like frustration and, and, and pain and upset or boredom. Right. Um, one of the things that people are, are very surprised about when we talk about this is uh, this can apply to be you're in a meeting and, you're, and you might say, you know, I'm, I notice that I'm feeling bored right now. Uh, one like, thing that will definitely happen is you will no longer be bored. That's right. From, from that moment, the meeting is I don't know what's going to happen at that meeting, but it's not going to be boring. Um, and uh, you say, I'm feeling bored. I wonder how everyone else are feeling about this. Is it just me? Are you all riveted? I'm wondering if we should be doing something different. That, that can be a tremendously uh, uh, exciting uh, to realize that that's a possibility, that you can do that. And, uh, and uh, you can get much better dynamics in the group when you're able to sense what's happening and share your point of view. It, it, it feels very different. You know, this, this kind of intervention feels very different than the one Skrull brought up earlier of, you know, I notice you're looking down, I notice your voice has gotten quieter. 
um, I'm wondering if you might be sad. That sounds different, but it's the same. It's good. Going back to the idea of like, something's not quite right. Let me go uh, say, you know, what can I, can I say what I uh, am seeing and seeing might be, you know, what I'm sensing internally, how I'm feeling. Uh, uh, so if I can learn to share what I'm seeing and at the same time, to be curious about what other people are seeing, then these are kind of the, this is the foundations of good interactions between people. And I have an example, which I, I, I love to share, where I observe this having tremendous effects. So, so some of this can seem quite theoretical. And you say, oh, yes, it would be nice if I could understand why the developer was sad, but maybe I could uh, implement the feature slightly differently. Okay, what, what's the real benefit? So um, in, in one case, um, I was sitting in an executive team uh, with the founder of the company and a number of high-powered folks who were running big uh, teams that were doing all the things for the company. And we all went round. And the salesperson said, yep, we're ready for the new product. Uh, we know the sales pitch. We have the decks ready. Marketing said the blog posts are ready to go. All you have to do is push the, the go button. Product said, yeah, we understand it. We know how we're going to train people. Um, the tech folks said, super, we're ready to support it. Went all the way around the room with everybody saying what they were going to do. We got back to the founder, the CEO, who was sitting there and he was staring out the window, which is kind of strange. We were thinking, why, why are you looking out the window there? And he said, there's just something that bugs me about this. I can't put my finger on it. But I feel like I should tell you that there's just something that doesn't feel right about what we're about to do. You all just gave me the greatest status reports ever, but what, you know, what's wrong? And then we went around the room again. And the salesperson said, well, actually, you know, our intelligence is that nobody's going to buy this. But you guys all told us it was great, so we're ready to go sell it if, if it'll work. And the marketing people said, yeah, we've already done um, surveys. No, nobody likes this. This isn't going to go anywhere, but uh, you, you said, so, so we're going to try it. Product folks said, yeah, the training, nobody seems to understand it, and it, it's not really working. And the tech folks said, yeah, and then we can't even get the servers up. So everyone around the circle said, this isn't going to work. None of them said anything until one person said, staring out the window, actually, there's something I see here. I don't know what it is, but it's not working. All of them thought, well, all the rest of you thought it was okay. You know, I'm here in sales, in marketing, you in, in tech, you in product, you're all telling me it's okay. It wasn't okay. We didn't launch the product, right? So that was a tremendous um, turnaround for the company and saved huge amounts of embarrassment, not to mention cost, um, uh, launching something that wasn't going to work. We launched something else that did work. So uh, if you're looking for examples where this kind of action can have tremendous leverage, can tremendous effect, um, I, I, I can tell you 10 stories like that uh, with, uh, with no trouble. And, and, and they happen at all scales, right? Mm -hmm. So because this is, this is not, uh, uh, to go back to Johan, your earlier concerns that people who are technical might feel like this is not for them. Like, well, that's managers and managers are about, you know, talking in boardrooms. But this, this happens all the way down to when, when people are coding, you know, what the design is, so, you know. Uh, do, your pairing partner. Your, your, yeah, it could, it could be your pairing partner. It could be something you could be by yourself and feeling uncomfortable with some code you're looking at and not quite sure and like, well, do I feel comfortable raising this and raising my concerns or am I just gonna carry on and hope for the best? <laughs> uh, uh, and so this kind of uh, insight and courage uh, and contribution can happen at, at, at every level uh, uh, from implementation to, to strategy. And the other thing that comes up, people say like, and, but who has time for this? And the answer is everyone, this is free. Like this, this more than pays for itself. We've done, I've done lots of conversation analysis with people and very often they've come in over long discussions and long arguments they had that were very challenging. And they realize after they analyze, they go, wow, this could have been solved in like three lines if I had just asked this question at the beginning. Like that, that uh, in fact, if we, we saw this pattern so often that it, it almost always, if your first response in, in, the, in the early on in, the, in that conversation was, you know, I'm afraid that 
complete the sentence. And it could be, you know, I'm afraid that this won't scale, or uh, I'm afraid that uh, we won't be able to finish in time, or I'm afraid that no one's going to buy this, or I'm afraid that I don't really understand. Any number of things would have made a much more productive, shorter conversation. And um, and so that's why I say that this is something that, that people definitely have time for um, if they have the appetite for it. And it goes back, if, if what's important to you? Um, I remember reading in Kent Beck's Extreme Programming Explained, it, the, which was a great book and really transformational for my career. Uh, and what thing that stood out for me is in the epilogue he's talking about, he made the observation that every methodology is rooted in fear. And uh, XP reflected his fears. And one of the fears that he had was, was to making software that didn't matter, you know, shipping software that didn't provide value. That, and, I, and that really resonated with me. And so it comes back to like, what's, what is it you fear? Now we all have our fears about interpersonal communication and risk and how people might see me, but I'm really, I'm really fear spending my life uh, uh, in teams where I'm not enjoying myself, making things that don't matter. Uh, and uh, and I'd, I'd rather risk uh, some interpersonal discomfort in the moment to avoid that outcome. And that's why for me, investing in conversational skills has been a good investment uh, and it's it's from that that say if you if you're similarly concerned about how you spend your time, do you want to be working uh, on uh, more exciting things, uh, uh, having more fun, uh, being more effective? If those things matter to you, then uh, we'd recommend learning the skills of agile conversations because in our experience, it can make a tremendous impact in these areas. Thank you, and and again, I'm just soaking it all in. Uh, one thing that you mentioned a bit earlier, Jeffrey, was uh, the the fantastic book uh, "Thinking Slow and Fast" of Daniel Kahneman. Yeah. And thinking uh, fast and slow. We'll put it in the show notes for the folks watching the podcast. Yes. And uh, it 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 even one of the biases that that he mentions uh, that that they bring is that what you see is all there is yes. bias, where we have a tendency to believe contrary to all evidence and all experience that we have full information, right? Yes. And if we try to tie that back into the original chronic DevOps conflict, yes, the conflict between developers and operators, right? Yes. Saying, I, as a developer, I worry that you, for no good reason at all, I can <laughs> see no good reason. Yes. I am unaware of any good reason that you should not just put this in production right away. Yes. And the other way around is I, as an operator, I can see no good reason why you keep pushing this <laughs> unstable, non-performant, non-compliant BS over this fence yes. for me to struggle with. And tying that together and even in terms of in uh, KPIs that might be in conflict and we might need to go a huge direction up and down in the organizational charge for getting people the right way. And even though we might getting more end-to-end -end teams, squads, tribes, whatever we call them, we still as an industry has tons of functional silos, both horizontally and vertically and uh, randomly dotted across the organizational landscape. So I think the thing that, that you're bringing together here is just so foundational for all the things that we do in DevOps, because it is exactly, we're always afraid of things we can't control. And I love like the, the stating, I'm afraid that you will reject my change and mm -hmm. I will be scolded because 
uh, I did not deliver my feature. Or yeah. I am afraid that you will break my uh, production systems because you have not considered. And, and that's like such a powerful starting point for shifting left or including people at the table earlier. Mm-hmm. Like, why don't we have the operators, the security people, the testers, the business, the whatever functional, functional role we have? Why don't we talk together at the beginning while it's still cheap to <laughs> digress? Why do we have to have a, a CEO doing his job looking out the window before <laughs> we figure out that something is off, right? Yes. So... Perhaps as one of the the final things, and I think the time is uh, getting around, Arendt, even though what you have talked about here and what I at least understand from your book is what I as an individual contributor or what I as someone who has understood, like I think it's Lisa Atkins who wrote uh, teamwork is an individual skill or something like like that. Um, Jeffrey, you mentioned something about you, you get the sense that the dynamics are not right. Yes. But I know at this session, we probably have some people who are those managers who live in meetings and conversations, who are those people here. So could you talk a bit about some of the your favorite structures or like setting the frame for us individual contributors, us ICs? What are some of the things that those higher up in the charts can do to make it easier or safer or more natural to, to work uh, with some of these uh, frustrations or styles or patterns, then I would be very happy. <laughs> well, it's a good question. I'll just say it's interesting because you talk about structures. And this is not something that I talk about very much about, you know, because I think this it's they've all been written. So we, you, you mentioned yourself kind of, of, of um, you know, more cross-functional teams, co-location, earlier collaboration. I think those structures are well documented. So uh, Jeffrey, what we just need is we just need to all adopt the Spotify model, right? That, that, that would make everything better. We just That's adopt right. that structure, it'll work because it works so well for Spotify, but, right? But, but the, the problem is that what, what I, and I think this goes back to something I read many, many years ago from uh, uh, Alistair Coburn, uh, which is he he was at the time looking at software methodologies and, and roughly said something uh, uh, like um, every methodology can work and every methodology can fail. Now, some are more likely to succeed than others. And I think ones that are more likely to have co-location and uh, uh, early collaboration are all more likely to, to, to work. But the, so it's not, it's not about the structures. I think the much more important skill for the managers and, and for the leaders in general, and actually I would say this, anyone uh, uh, who is able to sense the dynamics and act on them becomes a leader. And the, the, now the, the hierarchical position you have uh, um, gives you a bigger uh, uh, lever. You know, it gives you more leverage when you spot something and make a change. So it does make a difference whether you are an individual contributor or the CEO or you know a director or somewhere in between. It'll make a difference in, in your leverage, but not in your ability to be a leader and not in your ability to see the problem, speak the problem, and start the conversation. Uh, uh, the managers will have a, instinctively a larger audience. Uh, they'll have more senior people, and they'll have more opportunities to ask the question. Um, uh, but I think that's the that's the 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 really the point for the managers is the same as for everyone else. If you want to make things easier for your team to have good collaboration, the best thing you can do is learn your individual skills of conversations, so that you can ask these questions and start uh, uh, understand what's going on, and then give you a position to change the dynamics. That's my view. 
that's so uncomfortable for the manager and leaders who now have to change and learn all <laughs> those uncomfortable truths about themselves. Thank you so much. Squirrel, do you have any uh, follow-up on that, or are you happy with... Uh, I'm, I'm, with happy with, I'm happy with what Jeffrey's uh, described. I, I, I agree completely. Fantastic. Thank you so much for spending this time with me and for allowing you for being a guest on your podcast when we get there. It's <laughs> been such a pleasure. Both host and guest. Excellent. Glad to have you. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Thank you, Johan. Thanks, Johan. Thank you. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this interview, two-part interview with Johan Abeldskopf, a very interesting interviewer from FE Code in the Nordics. We really appreciated hearing from Johan coming to the FE Code DevOps conference and otherwise getting a chance to exchange ideas. If you have different ideas, if you disagree with us, if you agree with us, if you're not sure, we'd love to hear from you at conversationaltransformation.com. We'll be there with Twitter and email and phone numbers and who knows what else, videos, all kinds of fun stuff that you can check out to get more in touch with us and hear more from us. And of course, we'll be back next Wednesday. Special hint, in the next couple of weeks, we have a couple of very special guests. So watch out for that. We have some very interesting folks coming up. So you won't want to miss the next few weeks in April. <laughs>